Hi, thank you for listening to the Spotlight Report, our weekly podcast in which we sit down and speak with current academics about their life and research in lab. If you like the Spotlight Report, you can subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or find it on any common podcast app. You can also directly find the podcast on our website, which is loft.optics.arizona.edu backslash podcast. Please comment any questions or ideas for people you would like us to interview in the future. Additionally, if you have more feedback, feel free to email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. speaking with Narantha Balagopal. She is an optical engineer at Edmund Optics, and she obtained her master's in optical engineering at the University of Arizona under uh, Matthew Kopinski. Um, so yeah, with that, hi Narantha. Hi, here. thanks for having me. Um, what do you do? <laughs> so I am an applications engineer at Edmund Optics. Um, also known as product support engineers. I've been doing that for about a year now, since uh, June 2017. Cool. And what? how did you get into optics So I've always liked math, um, and I, I went to college with the intention of getting a degree in math, which I did. <laughs> I did do. Um, and my dad encouraged me to look into an applied field of math. Um, so I ended up talking to an advisor at U of A, and she suggested optical engineering because there's a lot of math involved. She used a lot of buzzwords that got me interested, like cameras and telescopes and all of those. So I heard the buzzwords that got you interested were different than the ones got me interested. They were like money, (laughs) traveling, lasers, and I was like, "Oh, sign me up!" Um, So yeah, you and I did a very similar thing. Mm -hmm. We both had double bachelor degrees. did you enjoy optics as an undergrad? I did. Okay. It is. Wow. A, so, okay. so I'm trying to get my thoughts more. together. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's such a niche field, right? And the exciting thing about it is that more and more things are being learned about in the field of optics um, every day, which is, is super exciting. Um at Edmund Optics, where I work now, um, like our, our our motto is the future depends on optics, and I think that that's really true. So I think it's a, a really exciting field to be in. I think that they call it, I think this is the century of light. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which sounds fancy, but yeah, like I think that there's a lot riding on this idea that optics and photonics is really going to revolutionize things the way that electricity did. Totally. And I don't know what was before electricity. <laughs> Nothing. Um, fire? Fire did, yeah. There's the a wheel. big gap. It was the wheel, <laughs> fire, the electricity. Um, so before we get on to Edmund Optics and what you do currently for your job, um, could you talk about your master's work, what the topic was? Um, and for our listeners, we will also upload uh, <laughs> or at least link to your thesis because oh, I know that it's on the Optics website now. It so. sure is. <laughs> So for my master's, um, 
the title of my report was Constructing System Matrices for SPECT Simulations and Reconstructions. Rolls out the tongue. Totally. Um, so under Dr. Matt Kikinski, um, we looked at some MATLAB simulations of SPECT imaging and how to uh, reconstruct data from imaging, basically brain scans in SPECT. And yeah, it was all simulations run in MATLAB, essentially. So a lot of math. Okay, I was going to ask, because it's pretty math-heavy. Yes. Um, math-heavy, uh, statistics and probability-heavy. Super fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, Dr. Kapinski is the one who made me really interested in probability and statistics, um, specifically imaging probability, because I had never actually touched that before grad school, and I right. had no idea, but uh, yes, statistics and probability is huge in imaging. Well, um, and you did research as an undergrad, but yes. you did it more so in polarization, right? Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> I've done a lot of different things, but before grad school, I actually worked as an optic mechanical design engineer at a company called Compound Photonics in Phoenix, um, which was very different than my master's work and also very different from what I do now. Um, but both of those things have really helped me in my current career. But like you said, um, in undergrad, I um, did research with Dr. Chipman, Dr. Russell Chipman in polarization. Um, there was actually statistics and probability involved in the imaging there, too. Um, we were using a device to look at the polarization states of natural scenes and that kind of thing. Okay. And um, we don't have to spend too much time on your master's, but was there any particular insights or any particular challenges with, uh, with your master's that you like, think is worth commenting on? I didn't know what I wanted to write my master's report on until less than 12 months before I ended up graduating. <laughs> Perfect. So it's really well planned out, yeah. long in advance. Um, but I mean, it's possible. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has had that thought. I know some people go into grad school knowing exactly what their research and their dissertation or thesis is going to be. Um, I did not. And it found me. And I'm really glad that it did. Cool. Um, what, I'll, what we'll also do here is we'll link to Neil Momsen's interview because he works on SPECT. Mm -hmm. uh, and he talks, we talked a lot about the probability and statistics there. I could go down the rabbit hole, I'm not going to, because I think it's <laughs> such an interesting topic. But uh, more so, I want to talk about what you do now, which is at Edmund. So, yes. can you tell us about that? Sure. So, I work for Edmund Optics. Um, we might be known in. in large swaths of the optics community as a catalog company because Edmund Optics did start as a catalog company uh, and Norman Edmund, the owner, um, was really into optics kind of as a hobby. Um, a lot of like telescopes and educational science type experiments. Um, so he built this company and uh, his family actually still runs it, which is amazing, over 75 years later. Um, However, uh, we are not just a catalog company anymore. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like an advertisement for us. Um, but yeah, some people don't know that we actually do a lot of design work. We do a lot of custom optics work and, and system level work. Um, in addition to our, our really huge catalog of optics and optical components. And what do you do specifically at it? Sure. So I'm an applications engineer. So basically, I help customers figure out what kinds of optics will help them solve their problems and how Edmund Optics 
and our parts can work in their systems. Okay, so the way that I look at this is we will say, we will say, oh man, we need to build an optical system. We'll go online, we'll buy some optics, uh, and we bought all the wrong things. And it doesn't actually work out. So you're kind of there to to do the measure twice at yes. once type of thing. Yes, okay. exactly. Uh, can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, I guess without going too much into specific customer applications, but, um, well, you can or talk... I guess, like, what's involved? Sure. So, yeah. so you can talk to us in one of three, actually four ways now. Um, you can email my group. You can chat with us. So if you go on, onto the Edmund Optics website, there's a little chat button. So you can um, get instantaneous feedback from an engineer, which is awesome. Um, you can call us on the phone. And we actually recently started a text service. So you can actually text an engineer. Um, that's a little bit more difficult um, as the customer since you're typing out complex technical questions on your phone. But if you're in a lab where your computer isn't and you need to talk to an optical engineer, we're, we're there to help you. <laughs> um, I'm pretty impressed by that one, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's super new as of this year, um, so it's it's pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, you can come to us with your questions. Say, hey, this is you know, this is what I'm trying to image. This is what I'm trying to illuminate. How do I make this happen? Um, we'll help you get those right products. We have also a large database of resources um, on our website and in our catalogs as well. We call them application notes. Um, so not only can we give you the products, but we can actually help you understand kind of the science and the physics behind why we're suggesting that you use this certain focal length or why this thin film coating will actually really improve the efficiency of your system. You guys have, uh, I think it's maybe an encyclopedia, I don't know what the right <laughs> term is, but it's really useful. Mm -hmm. There's, um, yeah. Edmund has, I am, I'm going to send the bill to Edmund actually for this whole advertisement. Uh, but you guys have this really nice series of web pages that will describe various optical things. Yep. Um, and you and I were talking earlier that we might be more familiar with these terms, but yes. optical engineers aren't the only people building optical systems. 100% true. <laughs> uh, so if you are not in optics and you have to say, like, man, I've built something, that's a really good resource. But it also isn't necessarily enough. Um, do you typically work with optical engineers or? We work with all kinds of customers. Um, obviously most of the customers, their companies are somehow involved in the world of optics. Um, but we can talk to anyone from optical engineers to research scientists to mechanical and electrical engineers to even just buyers. Um, you know, buyers from companies who say, I'm not an engineer, but my engineers told me I need to buy these lenses tell me what that means or how I can do that and uh, we can help with that too. Um, yeah, the, the application notes section of our website and our catalog is ever expanding. We're constantly writing new things, especially as new technologies develop, you know. So for instance, one of our newer application notes is on liquid lenses, which is, you know, somewhat of a new technology that's continuing to grow. Um, so not only do we have those apps, but we also have calculators. So um, they're interactive, and they can help you figure out what kind of lens will work for your system. For example, um, we do a really, a really great one on how to find the right lens to pair with your camera. Because focal length, especially for like you know lenses that go on cameras, is not necessarily the most in 
intuitive number. Right, you know, right. if you're thinking about a lens that goes on a camera that has a 35 millimeter focal length, and you're not super well versed in the world of imaging, you know, what does that 35 millimeters actually mean? Right. Well, it's complicated. <laughs> and you guys have one that I use just about daily, which is a SAG calculator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so this will be an enormous question, but two things. Before I get on to that, I want to ask, how do you guys choose what to keep up on and what to to wait a little bit on? Because you're right, there's there are constantly new technologies. So at what point do you guys say, and also in the scope of this, you're not alone. There are other companies out there who are doing similar stuff. So how do you differentiate and how do you say, yeah, liquid lines is a very good thing to, to get in on, uh, but other stuff just isn't there yet? I think a lot of it is market research. I actually don't You're, think I'm allowed to answer that question. Okay, well, and, and more so in the scope, though, I guess, of, like, you do, not you, but the, but Edmund itself, and I'm sure all these companies, uh, does do market research and does do this stuff to, to stay on the leading edge to some extent. It's not simply like, oh, yeah, we have lenses, and that's the right. end of it. You never change. I think that this continuous dialogue that we have with our customers is really beneficial to both companies in the end uh, because we get to learn about what people are working on and how we can best help them and they're getting the components that they need from us. Right, okay. So it's a, it's a back and forth for sure. Right. Yeah, and I... Perfect. Uh, what skills do you use now? Can you talk... I mean, can yeah. you talk about that? Like, what did you take from your... Uh, undergraduate and maybe your master's to a greater extent and like what do you apply and are there things that just like don't apply not specific to Edmund but just like when you get into industry are there things where it's like yeah that was superfluous I don't use it (laughs) sure so I'm going to answer that question in kind of the opposite way Um, you're going to pull a Matt Dubin you're going to ask me a question (laughs) no uh, but I could if you want me to Um, no I'm just kidding but so I definitely had my favorite classes in college, and I had classes that I studied for and I learned because I had to, but I might not have been that interested in. At my job, with the scope of products that Edmund Optics carries, it doesn't matter if I don't really care about a certain aspect of optics. Right. I still have to know it and be well-versed in it and be able to help customers with their applications on it. So Right, that's your job. <laughs> yes, that is my job. So, you know, I can't say, oh, I didn't really, you know, I didn't find the material in that one, that one class that interesting. So I don't think I can help you with your question. So right. not an option. So I really do, like, as far as the academia of it, have to use pretty much everything I learned okay. um, at my job, which is really cool. It's we. You know, the scope of my job is very large. Um, something, a skill that's super important to my job that I don't know if I learned it from college or if, you know, maybe it's just a skill that I have honed over the years from doing other things. But um, I'm constantly talking to uh, approximately a million customers a day. No, but a lot. And I have to keep up with all of them, you know, and... <laughs> Logan just made a face at me. Yeah, sorry. I, that's not going to convey through the podcast. My jaw literally dropped. So. so, obviously not a million, but, you know, I do, I'm constantly talking to multiple customers simultaneously. So, organization is huge. Okay. And it's so funny because it's like, that's probably the biggest 
skill necessary for my job. It's not necessarily a class that you take when you're, you know, getting your BS or your MS. Um, I would, I was, and I'm hopefully getting a little bit better at it, but I certainly was super unorganized. Because a lot of it, in my experience in grad school, is like, and even undergrad, is that you're trying to just keep up with the latest thing. Oh, I, like, as an undergrad, oh, I have a new homework set. It's going to do this for this for Grad student, uh, it's the latest results from the research project. And people will talk about, like, oh, I keep a lab notebook. No one actually keeps a lab notebook. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I actually, I I tried doing the notebook thing at work. Yeah. Um, it didn't work for me. Uh, I used OneNote. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like being able to use a control F feature, which is something I can't do with a physical notebook. So definitely digital notes helps me. Plus I type faster than I write. I don't know if that's just an, a generational thing or Yeah, no, I same. I just keep like a rambling word document of every project. And then yeah. it turns into a paper usually. Yeah, yeah, totally. A terrible, terrible incomprehensible paper. <laughs> um so organization is one. Uh, are there any other skills that you'd recommend for people studying optics uh, that want to go into like an optical engineer position? So if you go into a customer-facing role like mine, um, a huge skill to develop and to not kind of brush aside because we are engineers is communication. And I mean that in a lot of ways. Um, obviously, since I'm customer-facing, I'm talking to people all day, which as an extrovert, I love. Um, you know, for some people that might not be their cup of tea, but communication, even if you're not customer facing, you need to be able to talk to your colleagues um, about what you're testing, about what you're designing. Not only that, we're optical engineers. And like we were saying before, our field is so niche and you're going to be interfacing, even if they're other engineers, but you're going to be interfacing with people who aren't optics people. Right. They're mechanical engineers, they're electrical engineers, they're chemical engineers, you know, whatever they are. Um, you need to be able to communicate the idea of the importance of the optical components of your system or, you know, the influence that the optics, anything, the imaging, the illumination has on the overall goal of the project. So uh, communication is, is super key. Well, yeah, and, and you and I were talking about this earlier, but uh, is that a challenge where you have people who might not have math backgrounds let alone the optics background, to be able to say, like, this is why this is important. I've gotten really good at knowing which resources are helpful to answer which questions. Because some questions can be answered in a simple few sentences. Um, other questions, like, I'll use the focal length example of a, a lens assembly from before. It's not intuitive. I can't explain that to you in a few questions. Or, sorry, in a few sentences. Um, so I've gotten good at knowing which resources to kind of point people towards. Right. Uh, do you find being more, like, customer-oriented or, like, people-oriented position more fulfilling for you? Because you did work previously, not only in a lab, which arguably is certainly less people-oriented, but also you worked in other uh, positions. So. Yes, it is definitely... For me, <laughs> if that was your question. Um, like I said before, I am an extrovert, so I do feel really fulfilled getting to talk to people every day. I am really, really thankful for my experience as an optomechanical design engineer um, because I do have that kind of background. And, and if I talk to customers who are doing that kind of thing, I know kind of the general area of 
of what they're working with. Um, but even still, that, like I said before, those kinds of jobs still involve like a certain degree of collaboration with other people. I've I've uh, had an experience working in industry, and one of the interesting things is that I think you, as a student, you don't have this assumption, but you assume that you really won't have to interface too much as an engineer. If you're an introvert, you can be like, well, I really want to talk to people. But it is so important because you might do something, and if you can't explain it to the people yeah. you work with, it's yeah. like, you might as well have not done it. Yeah. You know? If you can't even explain it to, you know, your team, right. how are you going to explain it to higher-ups or other, you know, clients or vendors that you work with? Um, you know, trade shows are huge in our industry. Um, people are always presenting the, their latest technologies and, and that kind of thing. So being able to go to one of those and, and talk to a group of people like, hey, we, we designed this, we built this, is super important. Right. So, uh, if we have any listeners that are considering uh, making an optical system and they're going to go to you guys, are there anything, any tips that you would give them just before, like general tips of like, okay, you're going to make an optical system, here are things to consider before you. So this is going to be Before a... you text us. <laughs> sure. So, this will be a, a pretty a general statement and not very specific, but... Most likely, something's going to have to give. <laughs> I think that's true of almost every system I've ever worked on. Unfortunately, you're not going to get, um, you know, anti-reflection at every single wavelength, plus diffraction limited, plus, you know, the temperature control, like, can work up to 1,000 degrees Celsius. Um, most likely... 180 degree field of view. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> With no distortion. Right. Um, so, once you go from design to manufacturability, or even designed a prototype, you'll have to go into that knowing at least one of my specs I'm most likely going to have to loosen up on, which is a really tough thing, not only for us to have to tell customers, but also a tough thing when you're on the other end of it to have to hear. And I, I understand that I've been on the other side of that. And, you know, you spend so long in a design and you want it to be manufactured, but it's just not possible. Right. So what what, um, what if they don't have the technical expertise? It took me a long time yeah. to get to the point where I can do a design in CMAX and also in SolidWorks and tolerance it and have some like realistic idea of like, yeah, this won't work. Yeah. What if they don't have that skill? Uh, does Edmund offer some, some uh, guidance? Yeah. So my team definitely, we, we do try to use our own expertise to help with that. Um, we know what can and can't be made, at least within the confines of our factories, um, you know, and, and our coding cells and that kind of thing. We try our best to give you the best possible outcome, even if it's not exactly what you designed. Right. And something, you know, part of the reason why they call us applications engineers is because we want to get to know what you're doing. We want to know how you're applying these optics. Um, and even just having a third party look at what you're doing can be really helpful because you might be so stuck in like, this is, I'm going to use this coding on this optic and this geometry and it's going to be great. And another person might look at that and say, Hey, 
actually, you know, maybe using this A-sphere instead will be better, and it might just not be something you've thought of. So we do our best <laughs> to try to keep you as consistent with your original application as you are, but to give you the best possible outcomes that are realistic. Right, right. And how, I'm sure that it varies, but like, it sounds like you work very closely with someone if they have a custom design, etc. Is this usually like a really short process, or can it range to be a longer process and like uh, like a close working relationship, or what? Can you talk to me about that? Like, if I is it more common that you'll get someone who's like, "Hey, I just designed this. What do you think?" Or is it more common that you will be pretty well aware? Uh, of what their overall architecture and goal is, and you guys work collaboratively to get to that end design? Um, usually more so the first. Okay. Um, but questions that we get can range anywhere from, hey, how efficient is a magnesium fluoride coating on a lens, to how do I utilize optics to best image this biological sample on you know, a digital camera and get that on my computer. So right, right. we'll get we'll get the whole span. Um, I mean, I've had I've had I've had both experiences. I've had sure. times where I've uh, I think called Edmund um, and said like, "Oh, you guys have this mirror. Do you know I'm going to use this CO2 laser? Will it roast a hole through it? Or will it <laughs> sure. uh, and we'll answer that too. <laughs> yeah. Or I've also had times where we had to, for research, deal with infrared stuff and infrared detectors, and I've had to like sit down and have like an overall a number of hours over a number of weeks conversation to to just learn about it because you're not because you, you don't know about it. So I'm sure that you have that yes. full, full range. Sure. Um, can you comment on like the range of products Edmund provides? Yeah, it's huge. That's my comment. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we do want to be aware of all the components that our customers use. People aren't just using singlets and doublets. Um, they need mounts. They need illumination. You they need just, cameras. You don't just hold the lenses no. in place? <laughs> yeah, no. Surprisingly, the lenses don't just float in air, right? Um, so we try to be very mindful of that and, you know, include as many components as possible. You know, obviously all the uh, optical components from, like, prisms, mirrors, optical lenses, beam splitters, those kinds of things, but also all the accessories that go with that. Uh, I've mentioned lasers and illumination. I mean, we also, have to, you know, have test targets, like USAF test targets in, in different, you know, uh, negative and positive patterns. Thanks. Cameras. We have a, a huge line of cameras and, and lenses that can be paired with those cameras. So you don't know which focal length you need. Talk to me. I'd right. be happy to help you. <laughs> yeah, as far as I'm aware, it, it just like spectrum wise, it ranges from UV to IR. Yeah, and, and beyond. And, and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> what I, that should be your advertisement. <laughs> from UV to IR and beyond. Yeah. Um, so are there any. Um, we talk a lot with grad students, and one of the things we ask a lot is, what are the unique challenges associated with the research or graduate school? Uh, you have the great perspective of being in the industry and having done grad school. Mm -hmm. So what are the unique challenges, if there are any, of being in industry 
and then after that, I'll ask you about the differences between industry and grad school. Sure. So yeah, I went from school to industry to school to industry again. <laughs> so we had to edit this part because we had a surprise guest appearance. Uh, Neil Momsen has joined us. He heard talk about spec imaging and, and he just ran to yeah, show his up. Optics radar went off. <laughs> Um, what I was asking before, though, is uh, are, are there any unique aspects, um, either unique positives or unique challenges associated with industry that you would care to comment on? Sure. I think that when you're in school, you have, especially if you're, you know, um, not necessarily working a, a job outside of school, or at least a full-time job outside of school, um, you know, when school is your main full-time focus, the difference in scheduling your life is fast. <laughs> um, I had classes that were all over the place, um, tried to write my thesis in between classes, um, worked part-time jobs outside of it, had a crazy schedule, um, and now pretty much my day-to-day -day is the same. That's one of the biggest differences. Besides the fact that free time now is my free time, and I don't have to be studying or doing homework. Do you imagine that? Do you bring your work home with you? Too I, much? I try not to. Okay. Because um, that, that's a big complaint yeah. amongst grad students. Um, I don't really mind it. I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, but that is a big complaint usually amongst grad students. It's like, man, it never ends. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't, but I will say that when we do have particularly intriguing questions that, you know, I might not be able to answer on the spot. Of course, I'm still thinking about it. Right. Um, that's a little bit different than doing homework or, or right. you know, your PhD student studying for prelims or that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there any unique things about graduate school uh, that you care to comment on? Are there positives or negatives? I really appreciated, at least at the master's program at U of A, you know, since that's what I'm familiar with, I can't comment on anything else, but I really appreciated, uh, I really appreciated the flexibility of getting to choose which classes I thought would best, um, I guess, that would best help me accomplish whatever I was trying to study in grad school. Um, so I took, you know, a lot of Dr. Kuczynski's imaging classes, took some, you know, noise and probability statistic classes. Um, I even got to take a biomedical imaging class through uh, the BME department. Um, so it wasn't even in the optics department, but it was imaging. So it was very much related to my, you know, what I was writing my master's report on, um, as well as what I was interested in. So I, I really liked that flexibility. I really like David emphasizes, but the idea of like take as many classes as you can while you're there because you're there. Yeah. Right. Um, and actually, that that biomedical class in particular was so interesting to me because I was the only person in that class that didn't have a biology background. Huh. So every so often, I'd have to stop and, and say, like, could you <laughs> explain this amino acid chain to me? Right, right. <laughs> um, which, you know, in optics, especially, you know, at U of A, when you're so used to taking all your classes with all the same people and you all have the same knowledge base. So doing something like that in grad school 
was really good for me to get to be on the other side of that and, and um, you know, need some help to get the background information in order, order to be successful. Right. Um, so I have a couple questions. Um, but first of all, I was just uh, a math teacher. Who's my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> but we always have this conversation how people, one of the most common things they'll hear is either, I don't like math. I'm not a math person, or when will I ever use math in my uh-huh. life? Which is so funny because I um, used to work at an after-school program teaching math um, to kids from 2nd to 12th grade, but mostly 6th graders, so I'm very familiar with that sentiment. Okay, so what's your, <laughs> yeah, what's, what do you say to that? Like, if someone says that, any of those statements to you, what do you say? Um, well, it depends on, on the age of the person is how I'll react. <laughs> no, but... Um, I'll say, no, you will, um, and, and try to use something that they're interested in as an example. Okay. I think the best way to make someone, like, understand something like that is to relate it to their own life. Right. Um, did you, did you enjoy math? Yes. I hope so. Yes. <laughs> That's why I got a degree okay. in it. There uh, are parts of it that were less enjoyable than others, but overall... Still love math. Do you find it like <laughs> fairly applicable? I mean, and, and, and I'm, I'm asking this not in the context of your current job. I'm asking this in the context of like as a human out in the world. Okay. Do you find math applicable to the world in general? Mathematics, especially arithmetic and algebra, are literally everywhere. Right. I won't say that I use proofs or differential equations every single day. Um, even as an engineer, I think that learning how to think like a mathematician is really important. Um, learning how to think algor- algorithmically is really important. And being able to have a good idea of what numbers mean, kind right. of like in the abstract sense, is really important. Um, even when you're not doing something necessarily related to math. I'll give you like a really weird example. Um, if you are trying to book like a restaurant or a venue or something for a party or you know a wedding or something, having an idea of like what number of people means like volumetrically, like how much space you might need, right, right. that's something that you might not think that that would even like involve math, but it really does. So being able to like have an understanding in your mind in the abstract of what numbers mean when you apply them to things is right. really important. Yeah, I think it's like a way of thinking, a way of yeah. looking at problems, and one of the one of the most important applications in my mind is, is really good because now that Neil's here, uh, is like statistics and noise Definitely. and probability is such a weird, there's so many things, only in optics even, there's so many things that are just weird and non-intuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but statistics and probability is just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's such a weird concept. Yeah, and you have to be able to like understand what those specifics mean. I Whenever I think about statistics, I think about this quote from Scrubs where Dr. Cox says, statistics means nothing to the individual. And it is so true when you, like, take it in the context of, like, a hospital setting. But it's true. You have to be able to, like, understand, like, oh, 50% of patients, blah, blah, blah. Like, does that mean one out of every two patients, like, at that particular hospital? No. But it gives you a good idea of what's what's happening. Well, but that's also not how your non-statistician interprets it. Exactly. Uh, I talked to, or we interviewed a 
biostatistician. Um, and there's an interesting concept to me, which is that when you make new drugs for, for pharmaceuticals, your point of evidence to the FDA has to be that it's more effective than the, than the prior drug, prior state of art. And that means basically, like, statistically, a few more people might survive a little bit longer. That doesn't mean that it will really improve your quality of life. It doesn't mean that it's really a lot better. But it does mean that that will be the newest, biggest thing. And that means it will be prescribed. Whereas, like, the prior drug might be basically just as good, but it won't be prescribed as well. So I think that that's, like, really hard to wrap your mind around. But that's also why I wish more people studied statistics, Mm -hmm. just to have a better grasp of that. Uh, Neil, do you have any comment? I, I introduced you, so yeah, you, you, you have to. Um, and, you know, statistics isn't everything, that's for sure. And, and you know, and in the case of, say, a cancer drug, you know, in terms of treatment plans, you have surgery, radiation. So you have the different types of treatments, and for various types of cancers, they're all, you know, different amounts of uh, effectiveness. There's different levels of efficacies for different types of cancers. Um, and that's fine and dandy, but then you have to consider all the other factors outside of it, just cold hard statistics of, you know, chemotherapies that poisons less, and we're still going to prescribe it because, yes, it is more effective in some cases, but in other cases, you have to think about, you know, what are the other cause and effects right, using these instruments, and that, you know, that, that's analogous to just about any other optical situation. You need to think about different costs and, right. Technical difficulties they have to work with and other technologies and like that. So, well, and I I love the idea of math because it applies to everything. Like optics, optics applies very much so to optics. Right. Uh, you know, like I can't. We we have the catchphrase that it's like optics is everywhere, and it might be the case that you could apply optics everywhere, but it doesn't help you to necessarily interpret things outside of it. Math is like yeah. You yep. can use it to interpret anything. Almost. Yeah. Pretty much. I would agree. Just about. Um, and a lot of times, even if it's not number-based, like I said, it's a lot of times just being able to think logically or know how to think like a mathematician or even a physicist. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, we, we, we had our beer roundtable, so I hope to post that episode. It will probably be about a week before this one's posted or so. Um, but we were talking about this concept of something called Augmentian conversation. And this happens even more so in optics, where if you have two rational actors who hold different beliefs, an Augmentian conversation means that they would flip-flop between their ideas until they settle somewhere in the middle. And this happens super often in math. What's the word you're saying? Augmentian. A-U-M-E-N-I-A-N. Okay. Uh, it was a mathematical proof actually. Cool. But basically that like it, it happens in math a ton. Like here are two uh, It's almost like a uh, pendulum. Yeah. Here like here are two theories and I and the only way that if we're both rational honest that we can hold these theories is if we both have incomplete information. Anyways, total t- totally off topic. <laughs> but it's it's also math applied to like literally conversations. The way I discovered it, they're talking about it in politics. They're basically like politics is all irrational and not honest. <laughs> yeah, that's why you never have true. this result. <laughs> um, um, well, so I will say, uh, you know, as we're talking about things that have, have helped in industry that aren't necessarily the technical skills, 
Um, all right, so this is going to be a longer story, so bear with me, Logan, Neil, and listeners. <laughs> so for two summers, um, 2015 and 2016, I worked at an all-girls STEM camp. Um, ID Tech is the name of the camp. The all-girls camp is called Alexa Cafe. Anyways, when they are training uh, counselors and staff at these camps, something they teach us about is MORS. Uh, MORS, it's an acronym, M-O-R-S. Uh, it was developed by a leadership consultant named Aubrey Daniels, but it stands for Measurable, Observable, Reliable, and Specific. Um, and they taught us how to use this, um, essentially to help you have, I, I say it's to help you have difficult conversations, but really it's to help you have any conversation that's important. So, Whenever you're talking to someone and trying to get something important across, um, you know, whether you're talking to a child, talking to a child's parents, or talking to a coworker where you both are, you know, most interested in the welfare of the child, um, you want to make sure what you're saying is measurable so that there's some sort of quantity attached to it. Um, things like saying a lot or most of the time are not helpful because those are not measurable. So being able to pin down an actual quantity is really helpful. Um, observable. So when you can actually see something happening um, versus things like she believes or right. she communicated are not observable. You're not We'll go with it. Okay. But saying um, what was she said X, Y, Z is much more effective than, um, uh, well, she believes that. Right. You or don't I, know. I feel or I she, feel, she yeah. That, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so being able to use, like, really strong verbs that actually are observable, something that you can see happening. Um, reliable is just making sure the information is not something that can be easily torn down. Um, and specific is pretty uh, self-explanatory as well. So being really objective about a specific point. Mars was so helpful at camp. It continues to be helpful um, in my job in, in you know, in industry. Um, and I think that this would be true even in any industry. It doesn't have to be engineering. It doesn't have to be office. Um, but being able to have a, a conversation with your colleagues, with your superior, and using those skills is super helpful. But I also kind of like it because most people that worked at this camp were engineers or scientists or mathematicians. You know, it was a STEM camp. So it was helpful to have an algorithmic way of, like, going about having a conversation. Right, especially um, when a lot of STEM-type folks are... Uh, not the best communicators. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put it I, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no. <laughs> a great, great communicator. Um, Which is hard. I wanted to ask if you are willing to comment. Uh, are there are there any unique aspects of being a woman in STEM? <laughs> Also, haven't they? Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna double down and ask a second question. <laughs> Didn't they just change STEM to STEAM? They did. Yes. Okay. Which, in my opinion, rules. Okay, I want to hear your. <laughs> I want to hear your. Perspective and Logan on will that. know why I say that, and I'm sure I don't the know, listeners. I don't know what out. you're talking about. <laughs> I think art is awful. I hate it. It's the worst. Yeah. Um, no, we'll get to that definitely. But it, so, do you care to comment on any on on on? Uh, just your view of being a woman in this in STEAM sure. or STEM, yeah, or so, any variant of that acronym. <laughs> um, I mean, we can stick with optics for now, even. Sure. Um, so, well, SBIE, the like international, you know, 
a professional organization for, for optics and related fields, um, did actually introduce a, um, and I apologize, I might be getting the words wrong at this point, but um, it was originally a gender inequity forum. So they had um, women from various optics companies or optics related companies kind of work together as a task force to figure out, you know, why is there this inequity? Um, what can we do about it? And how is this affecting the industry? Um, some of the findings, and they're published, so you can find them. But we'll we'll, we'll uh, put up a link to this in awesome. the podcast. Also, I forgot to mention we'll put up a link to the Morrissey in the podcast. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> um, so there certainly are fewer women than men in 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 optics, and we're not unique. Um, this is true of pretty much every engineering field. I, I feel comfortable saying that without actually having researched the numbers. Um, Many might think that it's not a big deal, but a diversity of opinions, a, di- a diversity of educations, and a diversity of viewpoints is pretty paramount into getting projects done the best way that they can be done. I'm super proud of Edmund Optics for um, recently, so as it's a little over a year old, um, we established a Women in Optics Forum, so a once a month. Um, I'm super proud of Edmund Optics because uh, they've recognized that there is this gender gap and have done a lot to kind of correct for that. And maybe just to implement various things that help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They've been super supportive of, of all the female engineers in the company. And not even just the engineers, just whether you're an engineer, you're working in sales, you're working in supply chain, whatever it is. Um, I mean, Norman Edmund is the one who who started the company, but it's his granddaughter, Mari Edmund, who's running large portions of the company right now. And and obviously she thinks that this is very important, and um, she's a huge supporter of all the women. Oh, um, I think that a lot of times girls are less uh, socially encouraged to go into science-y fields because there's a lot of oh, that's for boys type mentality. Um, and a lot of it is implicit. A lot of it is not explicit, especially these days. It's not explicit anymore. Um, but it's still implicit and still there. And so it's still encouraging girls or women um, or non-gender conforming people into science actions. Um, right, right. Well, it's great. And I wanted to... We still have the goal of uh, interviewing Dr. Chipman, who you work for, because I was under the impression that he does a lot of work to uh, promote women in optics. Uh, yeah, he, he does. Really, he, he did some interesting stuff in his lab. Yeah, so, he does. He's uh, he's really a huge supporter of women in optics, and and that's great um, because you know women supporting each other can only go far. So right. far, um, we definitely do need the support of men. To, we need men that are like, hey, having women around is is important and great, and we want to support that. You're not when you guys take over. You're not going to eradicate men as a species. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. I watched Wonder Woman. I saw their <laughs> utopian society. We weren't in it. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I it's uh, I just love to hear the perspective. I have absolutely no idea about it. Because it might surprise listeners to hear, I'm not a woman in optics. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and U of A help, 
has been super great too. There was, um, you know, we have the the WIO Women in Optics Club, um, as well as a more campus wide um, suite uh, Society of Women Engineers. Um, so we'll link to both of those. Awesome. WIO and SWE? Yes, SWE, Society of Women Engineers, which is not just U of A thing. It's a national, it might even be international thing. They have chapters at various colleges, which is awesome. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I loved most about the camp that I worked for. So ID Tech was a nationwide, and now they're international, actually, um, camp for kids who want to learn about STEM. Um, but they noticed that, you know, only a certain percentage of their campers were not boys. And they didn't just accept it, but they actually, you know, went back and said, why is this? We're not advertising as a boys' camp. So they decided to do something about it and, and uh, started an all-girls version of the camp. Um, and it's not just this camp, but only girls. Like, you know, they, they tailored a lot of what they do to not be stereotypically masculine um, and showed, you know, our younger girls, like, you can like science and you can learn how to code and it doesn't have to be this weird boys club. It's, it's totally cool to, like, like that stuff and be good at it and learn it. Right. Cool. Um, I think what I would like to close with is talking about how you... Uh, what you do outside of optics and outside of work. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> because I'm the one that laughed when you said steam. Yeah, exactly. I guess I should explain now. <laughs> right. So what do, you, what do you do to blow off steam? <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Nice. Very good. I've been thinking about that one for a while. <laughs> um, so outside of my life as an optical engineer, I am a musician. Um, it pretty much consumes my life. I don't have any other hobbies other than that. <laughs> Um, no, but I, I do play in a couple bands. Um, I play a couple instruments. I write music. I sing. Um, I think that being creative is really important. Um, I think some people might think that my creativity is like the opposite side of what I do at work. Um, I like to be very clear about this and it is not. Being an engineer is a very creative field. Um, encouraging kids who are studying science and engineering type fields to, um, understand art better or like you know tap into their creative side will only make them better scientists and engineers um, Neil do you do you have any perspective on that I mean I I don't play music quite as seriously as Martha, uh, <laughs> but I do dabble a little bit and yeah I, I totally agree that they're kind of a complementary yeah they're both complementary skill sets and that having one can definitely help the other in just everyday problem solving kind of thinking outside the box yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about algorithmic thinking earlier, yeah. but as Neil just said, like, um, out-of-the-box problem-solving is just as important, so being able to tie those two in together might yeah. seem contradictory, but... Well, and I think even, I mean, the, one of the things that I think about is that you hit the nail on the head in the sense that, like, science and math uh, has been thought of historically kind of as a boys' club, uh, even more than a boys club, it's like a very unique boys club. It's it's like the nerdy boys club, right? <laughs> yeah. So you think of these people with pocket protectors and calculators and yeah. glasses, and we're all very serious, and we're just crunching numbers uh, and pretty boring and bland. Um, 
And, I mean, Neil, you said it earlier, we're not very good at communicating. And I think that these are all really negative stereotypes. Uh, you have to communicate to be able to explain your ideas. Science is exciting. It helps us to understand the world. So you want to be able to communicate to non-scientists. And even more than that, you'll, as a graduate student, I can't talk too much. Uh, I have minor exposure to industry, but, but certainly more so my perspective as a graduate student is that you have these unique problems and you have to be very creative uh, in how you solve them. Absolutely. And I view that as like fundamentally art, right? Absolutely. Art fundamentally is like, here's a wacky Absolutely. idea. Let's, let's jump into it. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I've had someone describe to me when you're designing like a circuit board, you have all the components and then you're trying to just place them on the circuit board in a particular pattern and kind of organization. Um, that actually doing that is an art form to an extent because you're trying to you know minimize the lengths of these certain strands of copper or right, right. trying to put these components right next to each other and that kind of thing. So yeah, there's definitely this play or play kind of um, playing back and forth yeah. between the two, the creative side and the organizational right. side. And and there's music too. You know, music is a very ordered and very. Like, it is, yeah. You, know, you can break it down in music theory. <laughs> you know, yeah, in terms of music theory, yeah, it's an octave is just doubling the frequency. You know? Yeah, unless like it's that. that awful, awful jazz. jazz <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we don't like to talk to them. Listeners um, <laughs> uh, may or may not know I am quite a fan of jazz. <laughs> yes, I, that was sarcastic. And I try poorly to play it, so. Um, I try to play it, and I do so poorly. I don't know. Like Logan's, Logan's a great bassist for all the listeners out there. He won't say it, but I'm letting you know. Um, well, so to get back to what I was talking about originally with what my job description is, helping customers use optics to solve their problems, 100% of the time we have to be creative in that. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like I said before, like they, you know, we might have a customer come to us and say, I think this set of optics will accomplish what I need, and... Not only do you need that second pair of eyes or whatever, but also that creativity to be like, what about trying this? It might be an unusual solution, but it might actually improve the efficiency of your system. It might give you a better result. Um, so I think that being creative, I think I said earlier that organization was most important in my job, but creativity is really high up there as well. Okay. Um, you got to hone your creativity. You can't right, just let right. it die. It's like a vessel, right? organize your creativity. Ooh, like <laughs> Get out of here, Neil. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, in all seriousness, though, um, I'm of the opinion that having something outside of work or research is very important. Agreed. Okay. And and, and music is your outlet. Yeah. Okay. Almost too much so. Yeah, music is becoming, <laughs> is arguably a job for yeah, you. Yeah, it is. Uh, but also hopefully an outlet. Um, I'm going on tour in October. Okay, we'll put if a link up. If you want to see me somewhere that is in Tucson, you can. We'll put a link up to your band <laughs> as well, because you are going to Texas, Colorado. And New Mexico. And New Mexico. And obviously Arizona. Yes. We'll put a link up to that as well for <laughs> listeners. We have uh, so many links on this we episode. We do. I'm excited. <laughs> um, and I didn't tag when any of these links are, so I get to go through the whole thing and find where to link it. Um I'm going to ask you a question that is very Sam Nuremberg inspired, oh boy. which is, are there aspects of math or optics that you find aesthetically pleasing or... Absolutely. Or, okay, great. What are <laughs> Sorry, those? do you want to finish your question? <laughs> no, I mean, that's the question. Like, what, what is it? What, what is it about optics that you find 
I definitely have had those experiences where it's like, wow, this is something in math or this is something in optics where it just like is is aesthetically or emotionally pleasing sure. or interesting. Well, if you want to talk about aesthetics, color theory is crazy, but also so cool. Um, you know, there's God, color theory in itself is such like a large subject. It's like, how do I even begin this? But if you're thinking about in an optics lab, um, this is a really, really simple example. But even just like being able to make two laser beams of different wavelengths coincident and then view the color that's not monochromatic, but it's coming out of one beam. Like the first time you perfectly align those two different wavelength beams and you get like this new color. I mean, pretty cool. (laughs) If you can get like a cyan or, you know, like, I don't even know, like a purple or something like that's really cool. Color theory on, like, the image processing side is also really cool because it's all numbers. Right, right. And we're not the only ones that use that. Like, photographers use that every day. Right. They're, you know, on the art side of things. Um, the Fibonacci sequence is, is all math, and it's found so many places in, in both art and music. Yeah. And I think that's cool. Well, and you hear it a lot, especially amongst mathematicians. Well, I don't want to go so far as to say a lot, but you'll definitely hear it that some mathematicians will say that they'll have almost like divine inspiration, or not even to make it religious, but just like a very inspired, yeah. uh, artistic, emotional take on like, oh, this is why I came up with this theory. Or yeah, this idea. for sure. And I will say that a lot of my more advanced math classes in undergrad, like 400 and above classes, bordered on philosophy at some points. Yeah, totally. When you start talking about what is infinity, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so far beyond what most people think that a math class is. Um, I had, like, a lot of philosophy major friends that, like, I could have conversations about what they were learning in philosophy because of these, like, crazy 400-level math classes. <laughs> so it, it does go so far beyond just, like, being able to add and subtract and divide them. Right, right. One of my, what I tell everyone that I talk to when I talk about quantum mechanics is that every lecture I go home and listen to a full record. I just put a record on <laughs> and I listen to it because my brain would just be like melted yeah. at how abstract uh, the concepts were and like how pretty it is. But yeah. yeah. Um, Stuff's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the crazy thing with that is when you start being able to relate the quantum mechanics, the very abstract things, to very tangible things yeah. in optics. Because that is, you know, something that we can do yeah. with the math. Uh, and yeah, being able to jump back and forth between quantum and very classical yeah. grounded mechanics and grounded you know, physics in general is pretty amazing. Well, yeah, that's one of my favorite things about optics is that you see this physical phenomenon, which is just which quantum physics describes uh, easily. You can see diffraction, you can see uh, wave theory applied, you can see uh, exclusion principle applied. So. Actually, that's a really good point um, because I, I do have experience, you know, as a teacher and stuff, but the coolest thing about optics is that you literally can see it because that's what it is. Yeah, like yeah. you can, you can show a concept and see it right there. Like this yeah, is, yeah. this is what's happening. Like the double slit experiment, like you said, like it's not just something that's happening on paper. Right. And honestly that there are certain things 
even at my work, um, we'll, we'll talk about stuff. And I, I was helping some, some new hires um, learn about microscopy recently. And I'm, like, talking to them, and I'm, like, waving my hands. And then I'm, like, this is not helpful. What am I doing? Right. <laughs> so I'm, like, I grab some objectives from the lab, grab some lenses, and I'm, like, do you see how this image is formed when you do this? Um, and, and all of a sudden, things click. So, the, you know, the coolest thing about optics is that you literally get to see it unfold. Right, right. At least if you're working with this Well, Dewook uh, and I had a conversation the other day about the fact that people take optics for granted. I was saying that I wasn't... I didn't know optics was a thing until I was in college. And Luke's take was like, yeah, I mean, everything is yeah. optics. You literally are seeing it and yeah. therefore experiencing it all the time. You take it for granted and, yeah. uh, pretty, pretty easily. I mean, our smartphones, so much of that yeah. is optics, whether it's like the display. Because like, people are like, okay, the cameras, but so much more than that. Oh. The display... The like fingerprinting technologies, information theory, yeah, the internet, (laughs) fiber optics. (laughs) Uh, So the two things I want to close on, I want to, uh, I want to talk about if you have any recommendations for people who are considering optics, um, or maybe even math more broadly, and yeah, we'll start with that. I don't know if I'm here on behalf of my company, <laughs> but I will say that we do have a really rad YouTube channel where our director of our imaging business unit um, goes over a lot of um, the basic principles of imaging. He makes them super digestible. Um, Gregory Hollows, um, super interesting. If you're not sure what optics is and you think you might want to study it, cool videos to see if we'll, that you're interested in it. We'll link, to we'll link those too. We'll, yeah. yeah, so we're surprise. on approximately link number 56 at this yeah. point. Um, and then I'm really curious about because of your background, your experience. Um, how do you how do you talk to kids about like science or math? Honestly. The way that I talk to kids and the way that made me successful as a teacher and a camp counselor was I talk to them like they're adults. Because at the end of the day, most kids don't want to be talked to like they're kids. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, talk to them at their level. So you right, you open up with, like, great, let's talk about diffraction theory. <laughs> yeah. No, but kids want to... Start with that. Light topics. So kids want to be treated as individuals. Uh, because they are. They're individual humans with thoughts and feelings and interests. Um, I love getting to know a kid and what their interests are. And if you want to get that kid interested in math or science, find out more about them first. It's not about you pushing something onto them. It's about finding what they're into and showing them about how they're already interested in math and science. Right. right. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I talked to... Uh, uh, I've talked a number of times to, to students in classrooms uh, anywhere from like 5th to 8th graders and it's astonishing the level of questions that they'll come up yeah. with. Um, I remember the hardest one is a student asked me to how do holograms work? Uh, and I started yes. being like oh well kind of hand wavy explain it and they're like no 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 like how like I know that it's like the, the light is like the light interacts and how do you make it like 3D? It's like, oh wow, you actually kind of uh, understand this. So yeah. So, I mean, do you remember when we were all uh, angsty teenagers and we thought we knew more than our parents? It's because we uh, actually did know a lot and no one was giving us credit for it. Yeah, okay. So, (laughs) that's like the the kind of perspective that I take when I talk to kids. Like, 
they are more aware than anyone gives them credit for. So just give them a chance. <laughs> cool. Uh, Neil, do you have any final comments either? No. All right. Uh, well, thanks so much for sitting down with us. I just yeah, want to thanks re- for having me. Yeah, I just want to recap. Uh, it sounds like you've done an enormous amount of variety of stuff from medical applications to strictly math to organization. You currently work for Edmund. Your job sounds extremely dynamic. You get to apply objects across a wide range of things. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to any comments or feedback you may have. To leave a comment, please visit our website at loft.optics.arizona.edu slash podcast, or our Facebook, which is SPL Report. Additionally, you can email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Lastly, we would like to mention that we are always looking for new topics or people to interview, so if you have a topic that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you and have a good week.